Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanwell Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book The Cruises of the Joan by W.E. Sinclair. This is part 13, and we're beginning chapter 19. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, and there for $5 a month, you can make a contribution that really helps with the production of this podcast. Now on with the story. Chapter 19, Danzig to London. When I came out of the yacht basin in Danzig Harbour, I remembered the customs or harbour authorities had asked me to visit them before I went. Since, however, I considered the request showed merely a slight interest in myself, I had neglected to look them up and was sailing merrily past their establishment bound for open waters and home, when I was hailed vigorously from the shore and peremptory motions were to be seen, ordering me to bring up. For a moment, I thought of defying all foreigners, but then as I reflected sadly on the usual speed of the Joan, I gave up this bold idea and rounded up alongside their quay. Once inside their office, I was presented with a formidable document, and it was explained that I had a pilotage fee to pay. I referred them to the sailing directions, but they refused to acknowledge this authority, so I sadly forked out the amount demanded, ten shillings, I think, it came to, and then they let me go. I spent a week making the next passage, a distance of 270 miles, to which my track on the chart added another 50. My log is an interesting one to me, but I fear it would bore anybody else to be obliged to read it. It is a curt register of the wind direction and the occasions when I went to sleep. I very often went to sleep, and at first I tried to get all the sleep I wanted during the daylight. Steamers and other sailing boats will not, as a rule, run down a little yacht if they can see it. At night time, it's different. Small boats cannot show light so efficiently that they are certain to be seen, and I distrusted mine very much. Yet I could not sleep during the day, much as I tried. When night fell, I became sleepy at once, and whenever the feeling grew strong, I yielded to it for an hour. Then my alarm clock woke me, and I looked around. If nothing was to be seen, I went in again for another hour's sleep, and more often than not, I passed the night in this manner. I lost myself twice during the passage. On the second occasion, I got a bad shock. Cape Arcona in Germany was 20 miles away on Monday morning, September the 6th, and I was sailing towards it. The last known mark I had seen was an LV at midnight on Saturday, so that some 30 hours had passed. Yet this short time was enough for me to lose myself hopelessly. As I approached Cape Arcona, I tried to make out the distinguishing marks and I read the description of the land in the sailing directions. It corresponded exactly with what I could see, and I felt pleased until land began to show westward and northward. If the first cape was Arcona, there should not have been any land in those directions. Cape Rosnow should have been to the east. As it could not be Arcona, it must be Rosnow. I examined all the land I could see for distinguishing marks, and read the descriptions of Arcona and of Rosnow. This cape answered perfectly to each of them, Then which of them is it? I kept asking myself, and though I waited patiently for an answer, I could arrive at none. At last, knowing that it must be either the one or the other, and knowing also that it certainly was not the one, I thought I might safely conclude that it was the other, so I laid a course for Cape Arcona. Anyhow, it's geographically impossible that it can be any part of Sweden lying as it does to the southwest of me. Therefore, it must be Germany, for Germany does lie to the southwest of me and has done for days past. It lay there the last time I saw it, and I know it did less than 24 hours ago. 
Then the rain fell and the mist spread and during four or five hours, I saw nothing. At eight o'clock in the evening, the veil lifted and I found myself in a bay with Cape Arcona away to the northeast. As this was also geographically impossible, I gave up the problem. I thought I might be somewhere in Stettin Bay and struggled again with the sailing directions. I could make nothing more of them except that this cape was as good as any other. All the capes answered to all the descriptions. More land opened to the northwest, and when I arrived off the cape with its lighthouse, I hove to until dusk so that the light should tell me what I had failed to find from the sailing directions. When the light did flash out its welcome signal, it took me half an hour's careful search to find the light in the official light list. And then I was in Denmark, 40 miles away from Cape Arcona, and I had to retrace my way to the first cape I had seen, which turned out to be Cape Moen. I could not get any more sleep after that, and I sailed hard all night and next morning on my course until I was able to beat up into Jedza. I was not attracted by the appearance of Jedza when I entered the harbour. It existed solely for the ferry steamers which plied between the town and Warnmund. These steamers carried trains. They fitted into very large special compartments of the harbour and all other traffic was discouraged. The sailing directions took much trouble to impress upon me that the entrance was difficult and dangerous, but I found it easy and safe. The same sailing directions praised the harbour itself, but I did not like it at all. After going in and nosing round to find out where the Joan might bring up, I saw that it differed from all other Baltic harbours which I had seen, for there seemed to be no place for my boat. I had to go out again to get my anchor ready for instant dropping, and that done, I came in again. There were several people watching me. They must have wondered what I was doing, and they probably marvelled more at my manner of bringing up. There was no room to turn head to wind, so I dropped my anchor, all standing, as I ran straight for the quay. It was not so bad as it sounds, for no sooner was the anchor on the bottom than it pulled her round, and I had the small mainsail off her in a few minutes. The spectators caught a line for me, and I was hauled in alongside conveniently, and glad I was later to have an anchor out to hold me off that quay. I even got the loan of a boat and laid out another anchor. The quayside was full of rusty bolt heads sticking out from the timbers which decorated the sides. The one pilot in Jedza told me that the Danish government looked upon their harbour as being specially for the ferry steamers and would not spend money on anything not directly connected with these steamers. If any other boats did not like the harbour, they could go away. With my two anchors to keep me off the quay and two ropes to keep me on, I was happy and slept in peace, and I believe I slept for 24 hours out of the 48 that I passed in Jedza. When I wasn't sleeping, I was either eating or walking. My first meal was taken in a hotel, steak of course, and it was as bad as the price was high. My next meal was a great feast aboard, much cheaper and better than the fare at the restaurant, though it had to be steak. It took me a day and a half to do the 70 miles from Jedza to the Kiel Canal. My log is nothing but starboard tack, port tack and no wind. Still, even the Joan gradually gets along and if you're ready to snap at a fair breeze, you really do make a little progress in course of time and most of this time was bright and sunny. I lost myself once again during the second night, but an unexpected lighthouse again pointed out the right road. The German customs tied me alongside their boat for five minutes while they examined me fruitlessly and then gave me a certificate of virtue. I liked the looks of astonishment on their faces as they said, nix, nix to one another. Going into the canal was a bit of a worry as I knew nothing of the regulations and nobody seemed to care whether I did or not. But at last the affair was managed and the Joan and I reposed on still waters. 
The Kaiser Willem Canal is not so picturesque as the Caledonian. The land around it is pancakey and the banks are high. It is, however, cheaper than the Caledonian. It cost me under a pound, and that included canal juice, towage for 60 miles, book of rules, and the service of a ship clerk to do the form filling for me. But there are only two locks here, one at each end. In the Caledonian, there are nearly 40, and the locks here will hold half a dozen biggish steamers and a dozen two fair-sized sailing craft. The Joan does not count, for they could tuck a hundred Jones in spare corners. The locks in the Caledonian held one modest steamer, and she left insufficient room for the Joan. I did not go ashore, and the weather was showery and I had no hat, lost it overboard in Keel Bay, so I busied myself in stowing jib, foresail and bowsprit, and generally tidying things in preparation for the morrow's tow. The passage through the canal occupied 24 hours. We passed the night tied alongside the bank. I say we, and I mean we, for the Joan was one of a crowd. I think our collection of boats towed by a tug through the Kaiser Willem Canal must have been the prettiest and most interesting tow that has ever passed through. First of all, there was the Joan. No, she was the wagging tail. There were two barkentines, three-masted sailing vessels, one flying the British flag and one of the German. The Britisher was a record in himself, being the first British sailing ship to go through that canal since the beginning of things. She'll probably be the last one too. They followed three two-masted sailors, Dutch and German. Lastly, there came three little yachts, two Germans and the Joan. We formed a gay pageant with our flags flying and our washing hung out to the breeze. The latter, if possible, was one more gorgeous in colour than the former. Another tow passes going the opposite way. It looked handsome, but there was little variety, not to be compared with ours. A mere line of eight schooners in pairs, some black, some white, all German and no washing. All the passerbys stared at us, and the passerbys were German, English, French, Belgian, Dutch, Spanish, Italian, Greek, Finnish, Swedish, Norwegian, Danish, Latvian, and Danzigian. There may have been others that I did not see, but these boats I saw myself. We had one exciting and joyful ten minutes about noon at Rendsburg. We dropped one schooner and took on another. The man on the yacht to which the Joan was tied explained everything and told me what I was to do, and then seeing I understood nothing, he did it all for me. He undid my tow line, tied it to another boat, put his own tow rope on my bow and somebody else's on his, and continued in this way until our part of the procession resembled a spider's web. But at his busiest moment, the signal was whistled for us to continue the journey. It was pretty to watch, and I restrained my own activities to attending upon the safety of the Joan. He would have done better to leave things alone. After much unnecessary scraping of boats as the warps strained and sorted out the tow, the only change effected was that the Joan was tied to a schooner instead of a cutter. By the time we arrived at the Elbe River, end of the canal I had arranged with my German neighbour to go with him to Hamburg if the wind was west. If it was east I was going to make tracks for home. It was west, hard west, and a bad weather tide was running. We tied behind the British sailing vessel, which had offered as a tow to Hamburg, and sailed up the Elbe. The British sailing vessel, or BSV, was interesting and so was the crew. The owner was originally a Norwegian who had been wrecked in the Seychelles. There he had married a Seychellese lady and he had brought her and her children and her sister to Stockholm, where he bought the BSV. He had also ordered for a crew to be sent from the Seychelles. There were about ten of them. The mate was a young Norwegian. The Seychellese islands were once French. They are now British, though the inhabitants still speak French. The Norwegian owner and skipper was naturalised British, and he spoke English. The ladies and children spoke French. The mate spoke German. 
The locals from Seychelles spoke a gibberish, which was a kind of deteriorated French. They understood nautical orders in French and English up to a point. Okay, I forgot that the captain spoke French and the mate English. Oh lord, it was awful. I would address the mate in French, which he did not understand, and he would reply to me in Norwegian. In the middle of our efforts to find the most suitable language, up came the German yachtsman, who spoke his own language only. He said something in German, to which I sorrowfully replied in English, that I did not understand him. The mate had by this time got his bearings and spoke volubly to the German in English. This made the German stutter. However we contrived to get at one another's ideas, I don't know. But anyhow, everybody laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. It was a merry ship. We laughed as we enjoyed our dinner with them. The BSV anchored off Altona on Wednesday, September the 15th, and I set sail in the Joan and found the yacht basin below Hamburg, where I was invited to stay. I was told that the town of Hamburg had built this basin for yachts. There was accommodation for a couple of hundred yachts, each moored in its own little compartment, so that you could step upon a floating wooden platform and walk along it to the shore. There was a clubhouse there where you could get meals, and there were facilities for watering your boat. I do wish that London would build one of these. I spent Thursday in Hamburg, convoyed by my Bohemian-German acquaintance of the yacht. He took me into the docks and over a pilot schooner which he had bought with a view of making a world tour in it. You may conclude that this made me a little excited, especially as he wanted to make the affair pay and was hard up for money and crew. As I was in almost as bad a predicament, we made a pair. I wandered all over the boat and sighed a good deal, but as we couldn't stay there moaning all day, we left the boat and found a place in Hamburg where we ate a good and satisfying dinner for eightpence. The evening we passed at the house of a man who is much interested in boats. He is a yacht designer and writes amusing stories for a German yachting paper. I promised to write to him when I got back home a short account of my trip so that he could translate it for his paper. His wife and he came aboard the Joan this morning and as the only hospitality I could offer them was tea made in the English manner, that is to say my manner, I made tea for them. They drank it and praised it, and this I thought extremely good-natured of them, for it must have been a little like wormwood to their palates. In Hamburg, I made a weak attempt to buy the charts for my journey to London, but the attempt failed. Really, I was not inclined to spend the money required. It seemed to me that by the aid of the excellent voyage of the Elbe, and by my recollection of the passage up the river from the southern end, I could safely make my way into the North Sea. Once clear of the land, I could lay a course for the shipwash, being convinced that the North Sea between the Elbe mouth and the shipwash LV was deep enough to float the Joan. The course could be found from the latitude and longitude positions given in the nautical almanac I had on board. At once, in sight of an English mark, I was provided with charts sufficient to get me home. So I brought no charts in Hamburg. My German friend gave me a coloured map of the Elbe, which turned out to be quite enough for my purpose. I came out of the yacht harbour at Hamburg at 3pm on Saturday, September the 18th, 1926, and for four hours drifted down the river. Then I followed the example of several of the yachts, which had set out in the afternoon for a weekend sail by anchoring behind an island in the river a couple of miles below Schulen. The next day, Sunday, it was so misty that I did not get underway until 11am. The wind came east, the ebb was strong, and at about 6.30pm, I brought up once more a mile or so above the Kiel Canal entrance, just south of the deep water channel at the bend of the river below Freiburg. My head ached with the heat and the glare and the strain of the passage down a busy river that I knew so little about. I had not been able to leave the tiller and I was hungry.
My ideas concerning single-handed sailing were becoming very clear. It was a game that had to be played badly, and the result was not worth the labour it cost, but I meant to finish the job in the way I had begun it. I set off again before daybreak, so as to obtain all the advantages of the ebb stream in getting clear of the Elbe. Once past the canal, I became confused about my course. This was due to the many lights, the bend of the river, and the fact that I could not leave the helm to consult my coloured map. By the aid of passing vessels, and perhaps also because it was high water, I got past Cuxhaven all right, and with daylight and a stiff easterly breeze, I had no further difficulty in clearing the river. I took a departure from the Elbe light vessel at noon on Monday and laid a course due west. Heligoland could be seen to the north and at 4.30pm I saw a light ship, the Wiser, due south. Two hours later I considered I was well away and altered course for the shipwash light vessel, distant 230 miles. After passing within sight of Norderney light vessel, it suddenly occurred to me that it was possible my course to the shipwash would not take me clear of all the Frisian islands. The only way I could find this out was by calculating the course from two or three outlying light vessels to the shipwash, and I made the alarming discovery that the course I was steering would take me bang across some of the islands. So at 8pm I altered to due geographical west to avoid Borkhamrift, Rift, 43 miles from Norderney. Throughout the next day I sighted only an occasional steamer. During the night, in a calm, I had three hours sleep. In the morning, too much wind blew and I pulled down a couple of reefs. Later on, I shook them out. Most of the day was spent in sailing like this or heaving to for a meal. I made less than 40 miles this day. At 10.30pm on Tuesday, the wind had died away to almost nothing, but there was air enough to keep the boat hove to on the starboard tack, pointing northwest, and with side lights and stern lights showing and no traffic to be seen, I thought it an excellent opportunity to snatch a little sleep. I remained in my bunk, till 3am when I rolled out and looked round. There was still no other boat than the Joan within view. The boat was still on the starboard tack and as she had been left and there was a little more breeze. I estimated that she had sailed five miles on a westerly course during my sleep and I entered this in the log. How far she had really travelled and in what direction nobody knew of course but the distance was unlikely to have been many miles out for any great increase in the wind would have wakened me. That was a thing I could be certain of but the wind might have shifted round the compass for all I knew. There would be nothing in the motion of the boat to tell me that. The five miles might have been as much as ten or as little as four. The direction may have been right on my course, or it may have been in the opposite direction, or in any other. Being now properly awake, I sailed the boat. This means that I sat in the well and steered her. By my reckoning, the shipwash lay 130 miles away in a direction south 33 degrees west by compass, or put into other words, I had to keep the compass pointing southwest by south. It was tiring work, and for five hours I did this in the light wind, and I judged she had made five miles in this time. At eight o'clock, I took an altitude of the sun and calculated my longitude. It was more to keep myself occupied I did this, for the result was of little value. The answer depended for accuracy on my knowledge of the exact time at Greenwich. My watch was supposed to give me this, but the only thing I ever knew about the watch and its rate was that it would by no means give me Greenwich time. Still, it was a part of the ship routine and the results might be interesting to compare later with what they should have been. From 8 to 10.30 the boat sailed 6 miles and then I hove to because I was hungry and meant to have a good feed. I brewed a pot of coffee and made a very fine omelette with 4 eggs. 
like omelettes when I make them myself, and I'm a first-class cooker of omelettes. This, with bread and butter and marmalade, made me a good breakfast, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and I had no compunction about the time I spent over it. The wind was light, and the boat moved slowly over the calm sea at two miles an hour. The sun was pleasantly warm, and if I sweated myself, I couldn't make the boat go much faster, so why bother? It was just the occasion to read, sleep, feed, or do any other like useful deed. At noon, I got my latitude, and then a good breeze sprang up, which made steering a necessary and encouraging task. So I sat cheerfully at the tiller and sang my songs with nobody to complain at me and declaimed the rhymes I could recollect and thought much aloud about the cruise and the slow progress I made through being alone. The breeze lasted for five hours and accounted for 20 miles. Then I hove to again because I wanted a hot drink and a meal. This time the meal was what I generally call a cracker hash. A pan full of onions was fried brown. While they were doing, half a tin of bully beef was cut up and heated over a saucepan of boiling water. Then the two were mixed in the frying pan for a few minutes and a mound of excellent feeding was piled on a plate. Every scrap was eaten and I finished with a mug of coffee. By this time the wind had increased so that I took in one reef for comfort and when at 9.30pm we began to get a few waves toppling aboard, I hove to again. I did not intend to get myself and my stock of clothes soaked if I could avoid it. Plainly, it was a signal for another pint of hot coffee and a bite of bread and cheese, and the coffee was made strong and was liberally sweetened with condensed milk. I was indulging myself in this way, glancing around from time to time when I noticed the reflection of a light away to the southeast. I watched it carefully and at last came to the conclusion that it must be a lighthouse or a light ship. If so, it was important to find out what the light was. I find no account of this light in my log. That is to say, there is no description of its period. I suppose this must have been because the light was so far away that the waves prevented my timing it. The problem of finding out the light took me some time to solve, but by the use of squared paper, marking my estimated position and course and the position of the various lights within a wide circle from where the Joan was, I finally made it out to be the Terschelling light vessel. This fixed my position and helped me to believe that my own calculations had been, well, good enough. I'm not going to praise their accuracy. I remained at the tiller after that and sailed the boat whether I got wet or not. It was necessary to get away from those islands. Having no chart of the coast, I considered that the most prudent plan was to sail away from them as fast as I could. So I sat there and sailed her till nine o'clock the next morning, when the wind dropped a great deal and I hove to again for feeding and washing. Thursday, repeated more or less the events of Wednesday and at 11pm I felt so utterly sleepy and tired that it seemed dangerous to let myself get any worse. So I hove to and slept while I had the chance. I set my little alarm clock to wake me in an hour. At the end of that hour, I looked round to see that things were all right and no steamer was in sight and to note the wind and the course the boat was steering herself. This routine I maintained for the rest of the night and by 8am on Friday, I felt I had done myself well and so set myself to sail the boat as before. Soon after two that afternoon, the wind died away completely and we drifted in a light mist. At 3pm, to my astonishment, I saw a black bellboy. We drifted past it too far off to read the name painted on it. According to my dead reckoning and celestial observations, I was too much to the east to be in the neighbourhood of such a mark. After a diligent search in the list of boys along the part of the English coast, I made out that it must be Smith's Knoll Boy, 20 miles east of Yarmouth. This was on the latitude I had obtained at noon that day, but my watch 
had so far misbehaved that it had placed me 50 miles away to the east, and not only that, but my estimated speeds had erred, or perhaps a little boat had been going along faster when I was asleep than I had had any notion of. I was now across the North Sea and definitely located, but I had still a hard struggle before me to reach a harbour. Twice, at an interval of 18 hours, did I get a sight of the shipwash light vessel. Headwinds and strong ebbs drove me back as far as I had been able to beat during the flood, but I was now unable to turn in to sleep. You can do this if you are well away from the shore, but in a coastal trip it is very risky. What with the coast and shoals and the channels and traffic, you must be attentive all the time. So it meant sailing her all the time without sleep. It was easy enough to feed, of course. You could always let the boat lie too, so long as you kept watch. So when, on Sunday at 4pm, I managed to get into shallow water inside the cork-like vessel, and both wind and tide were against me, I thankfully dropped anchor. Then I was able to get a few hours' delightful sleep. As soon as the tide turned, I set off again and reached Shotley in the Orwell at midnight. I ought to have reported to the customs at Harwich. This I intended to do the next day by going down to Harwich on the early morning tide. When I came on deck, however, I was too late. The flood was making and there was just a light air upstream. So I drifted upriver to Pin Mill and waited vainly for a visit from a customs officer. None came, and next day I walked to Itswich and reported my arrival. They fined me two pounds and advised me to write them a nice letter about it, saying I might possibly get my money back. I'm happy to say that they did return my two pounds after a week or two. I set off again at dawn on Wednesday the 29th and anchored near the Yantlet Boy in Sea Reach at 7pm, but owing to fog, I did not reach Erith till 48 hours later. There, my cruise finished, and I was glad to come to the end of my single-handed experiment. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.